If you've got a Bible, open to Luke 1. We're going to continue in our series on Advent. Did anyone else... I grew up like traditional Lutheran. My dad was a Lutheran pastor for like 40 years. Anyone grew up or has been in mainline Protestant churches before where like Advent is like, like a huge deal, right? Like acolytes. Most 99% of people don't know what an acolyte is, right? It's like they come down. Like we used to have like a tower with those candles and like it was a, it was a big deal. So I'm kind of, I'm glad that our, uh, we're doing kind of an Advent focus here, even on Sunday morning, Sunday nights. Uh, kind of brings back memories because I remember Advent was just like, well, it was torturous as a kid because you had to wait four weeks for Christmas, you know, but like every candle was like, come on, you know, but we're focusing on Advent um, tonight. And so we're going to be in Luke 1, Luke 1, I'm going to pray and then uh, I should bring up my notes, it might help. And then we'll get going. So pray with me, if you will. Uh, God, we just uh, come before you tonight, uh, I hope, in anticipation, um, not only of what this season means, but um, the entirety of, of your second coming. And so um, I just pray for an active anticipation in the hearts of your people um, as we study the initial advent, the, the initial coming of you, the initial incarnation, but as we also... Um, Look forward to the second coming that's promised as well. And so, would you take my notes? Would you make them a sermon? Would you um, embed your truths into the heart of your people tonight? Uh, we love you. We cannot wait to see you again. And so, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, Zach, um, and we kind of promised to take a slightly different um, approach to Advent. You know, Zach and I challenged ourselves to not that. Stating the obvious truth of, of any biblical narrative is wrong in any sense. We've certainly done that, but um, not with, without distorting scripture. Kind of take a look at the Advent time from a slightly different perspective because there's, there's a lot of text and the church has kind of systematized how you talk about the coming of Jesus and it goes from here to the wise men to the star to the baby to the end to the, this, that. And you kind of run that circle every year and you kind of get used to it. Um, but Zach and I wanted to dig a little deeper, and, and you'll realize, I hope tonight too, you'll be like, I don't know if I've ever heard this text as part of an ad, Advent buildup. You know, it's usually the part we skip over on purpose, because it doesn't seem to really have to do anything with, you know, baby Jesus at times. And so, um, so we're doing a three-week series on Advent, subtitled it, Appreciating Christ's First Coming. And last week, Zach and, and the rest of us, we took a look at, I love what Zach did, too, is he, he talked about how this wasn't just the coming of Jesus, it was also the coming of the Holy Spirit, the first time in the New Testament that you see the coming of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And so, if those of you that were here last week know that, and if you weren't, all our sermons are online, you can go back and check that out. And we also took a look at Mary. Does anyone remember the, the, the main reason Mary was chosen? It's because she, she allowed herself to be a nobody, Right? So that she was allowed to be overcome, overshadowed by God. And a lot of times we think, why was she picked? And entire religions are divided on why she was picked. And they, they go off on theological rabbit trails as to who she is and how she should be venerated or, or spoken to or prayed to or whatever it is. And we, we focus on all this stuff about Mary when the, the clear biblical picture is that she was kind of a nobody, which should be comforting for the rest of us who are clearly nobodies, right? <laughs> like, like no one knows me outside of this room. Like no one's, no one... Right, But I just pray that my life would, would, and that was the word that haunted me in a good way all weekend, was like, do I allow myself to be overshadowed by God that no one would see me? Right? 
that, that, that God uses those that he can overshadow because he's not about glorifying us. We're to be about glorifying him. And so we, we, we saw this drawdown of the, man, it's, a little, it's, it's warmer here than it is up there. My goodness, this one's hot. You know, like, I'm going to have a tan on my forehead, finally. So, <laughs> um, that's cool. Um, but so, so we took a look at it. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit, and, and then we took a look at Mary. And tonight I want to talk again about the Holy Spirit, and we're just going to continue in Luke um, in fact, we're going to start kind of a little bit earlier in Luke, and I want to just kind of bring us up to speed with the, the part that we're going to focus on tonight. And so if you'll look at verse 5 with me, tonight I want to talk about a couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and I want to talk about their baby boy, John, right? And this is, this is where we kind of, we, we, we kind of jump around that in the typical advent, and yet it's right here, it's clearly going on at the time that we're getting ready for Jesus' birth. This is clearly the parallel narrative that's going on that God put there for a reason. He could have just done this chapters later and said, oh yeah, by the way, at the same time, or had done this later, but it's right there in the story. It's right there in the coming of Jesus is also this parallel narrative of, of Elizabeth, this wife, her husband Zacharias, and their unborn baby, John. And so verse five, we'll just, we'll kind of read this and just let it saturate. It says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. That's what we know. That's what dad does for a living. Dad's a priest. Okay. Dad is a priest, works at church. He's on staff at church. Zacharias. Of the division of Abdijah, his wife was the da- was of the daughters of Aaron. And so Aaron, again, was a great high priest. And she's in the lineage of that. This is a priestly family. This is, these are it, perhaps, you know, kind of the religious all-stars of the day. Like they were known, they came from religious families. They were in church, serving church, and that's a great thing. That's a great thing. It says, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. See, we, we love, and it's, it's replete throughout scripture, we love to talk about the people that were awful and God used them, right? We do that a lot. We love that. And sometimes God uses the people that weren't that awful. Like sometimes God uses the righteous, as he calls them, his word, not mine, and the unrighteous. There are people with different measures of faith, different areas of, of their walk, and they're trusting God, and God uses both. So we mustn't always focus on the people that really screwed up all the time. And we just did a series on the Apostle Peter. And we talked about how, man, he just screwed up left and right and God still used it. Here's some folks that the Bible just very clearly and plainly says they served and loved God and God used them. And it says, and they were both righteous before God, as I said, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense and he went into the temple of the Lord. So husband is at church doing what he's supposed to as a priest. This was his time to burn incense for an hour. And they rotated. And so this was Zacharias' time as a priest. And it says, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar. 
of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Why? Because angels are are gnarly creatures. They're not cute like we want to portray them. They're not cute and fun and come in on a cloud with a harp. These are magnificent beings, created beings. Not to be worshipped, not to be deified, but make no mistake, they are incredible beings. The Bible says they are wise, they are holy, they are set apart, they are strong, okay? And so this is an amazing creature. You see this in Revelation when John sees an angel and he falls on his face, almost like starts worshiping him. And the angel's like, stop, I'm just a servant. But their presence is big. It's commanding. These are, the, these are the, the among the ranks of the angelic army. And so Zacharias, the priest, sees him and he's afraid. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. I love that. He's a dad that wanted kids. He was a dad that wanted kids. We need more men these days that can't wait to have kids and pray for kids. We really do. He was a dad that on at night, I imagine, the Bible doesn't say, Elizabeth was asleep, probably had prayed the same prayer and he was up later praying. I want a kid. He said, do not be afraid for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. The Bible, by the way, very definitively and on multiple occasions, says unborn babies are people that can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Real quick, if your politics don't align with that, you need to get on your knees before Jesus. If your politics do not align with the Bible, you need to submit them to Jesus. The Bible says unborn babies can be dwelled with the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist was indwelled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The angel continued, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was an amazing prophet, amazing miracle worker. He will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years. See, Zacharias didn't trust him. He didn't trust him. He didn't take him at his word. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, but behold, you will be mute. See, there's chastening for disobedience. Remember that. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. He says, you're about to go silent for about nine to ten months. You're, about to, you're not about to say a word. Be able to say a word for the, the, the course of this pregnancy. About nine to ten months. Forty weeks. It's ten months. We always hear the nine-month thing. It's really about forty. Or it's about forty weeks. It's about ten. It says, you're going mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words 
which will be fulfilled in their own time. And then you can see that we jump into Mary's scenario and Mary and Elizabeth meet and John leaps in the womb again, an unborn baby, clearly seen as a person before God, leaps in the womb as he gets near the unborn Jesus. And then you can see verse 46, we go into a song of Mary and she sings and this whole thing is, is virtually like Old Testament. She studied her Bible she knew her Bible, and it was so prevalent in her life that she, when she sang, it came out and resounded, and it sounded much like not only the prayer that Hannah had in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 2, but other places in the Old Testament. You could see that the, the scripture had saturated her life, that when she sang for fun, it was weaved with biblical truths. And if you'll go down to verse 57, this is where we will begin the lion's share of our study and so Advent, we're taking a look at Advent, like I said, which, which a lot of times is treated very um, proper, with, very, with a lot of properness in, in mainline Protestant churches, in the, in the non-denominational churches of which this is. We tend to not put as much emphasis, and so it's been fun doing that, as I said earlier. Advent simply comes from the word in Latin, meaning the coming, okay? And it's essentially the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Some of this you may know, some of this you may not. And, and I, I dug it up a little bit. It says as early as the 4th century AD, it was, it was really a season of fasting for Christians. Maybe that's why we don't want to do it as much. We're just kind of like, eh, right? I'm going to starve for a couple of weeks. No, right? But it was a time of, of fasting for early Christians. It was, it was a terrific time of reflection and repentance and anticipation of what the season meant. It wasn't simply the, 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 the drawdown to presence, it wasn't simply the get to the gifts, get to the giving. It was about what we've already received. And so it was a time of preparation and purpose. And the purpose of the season is to anticipate or to reflect upon the original anticipation of Christ's coming. And so it's a season focused on waiting. And no one likes waiting. Have you noticed that? No one likes waiting anymore. Anyone here just like stoked on waiting? You're like, I would love to wait for things longer in life. Anyone? Right? Like anyone? Like, no. I wrote down a couple things. Before cell phones, you had to wait at home for your friends to call. A lot of you don't even remember these days. I grew up in the 80s. Phones weren't even detached yet. They had these like 48 foot cords. We'd run through the whole house with them. There's a couple cool people that know what I'm talking about. Long cord went all the way down, right? You'd be like hiding under desks to try to talk privately because you had to be near that thing. Couldn't be out in the backyard with your cell. And if, if your friend wanted to hang out, he's like, hey, I'll give you a call. When? I don't know when I'll be home, like six or seven. Guess what you did? You waited from five to seven for that friend to call. You just waited. You had no clue when they were gonna call. And if you stepped foot outside, you might miss it and not get to hang out that night. We used to have to wait for phone calls. We don't anymore. Like how many of you get angry when a text doesn't go through in three seconds? right? I think it was Louis that said, would you give it a second? It's going to space, okay? I'm like, relax. It's going to space. Like, this is ridiculous, right? Two bars. It's barbaric. You used to have to sit and wait for phone calls at home or else you didn't get to go out. You didn't know where to find people, right? You didn't know where they were if you couldn't call them at home or you'd just see their bikes in front of their house. That was how you knew if they were home or not. 
before Facebook and Instagram, we had to wait until the next day at school to find out what people did that night. It was insane. You had to wake up, you had to eat breakfast, you had to get dressed, you had to get on the bus or get driven in, get dropped off, connect with them and say, what'd you do last night? That was the only time you got to know what they did last night. You didn't get to watch it live streaming on your phone, right? Oh, she's with them tonight? Ridiculous, why wasn't I invited? You had to wait to talk to people about what you did. You didn't get to stream it on your phone. Heck, before credit cards, you had to wait for a paycheck to buy something. That's crazy. Every two weeks, some people get paid once a month. Like, I want that right now, and I don't have money in my hand. You had to wait for your paycheck. You had to take it to the bank. You had to cash it. You had to go back to that store weeks later. No one likes that anymore, do we? No way. Now, immediate, now it's like phone. Boop, I'm out. I do it with Starbucks. I don't even need a credit card anymore to buy it. And when we do have to wait, we don't like it. Right? We get annoyed waiting in line at Starbucks, don't we? It's like, how, many, how many of you have, have gone to a different Starbucks because you saw the line at the one you walked into? Ten people? I could be at another place in three minutes. And you're gone, right? I gotta wait in that line, we're out. I do the same thing with my boys on Saturday, I confess. There's one right on the corner by my house. We're going to foot golf, come out, I see like, if I see five cars, I'm like, nope, going to Westlake. <laughs> it's Saturday, nowhere to be. I'm not waiting in that line. They got five cars, I can get to the other one. It'll be, well, they don't know, not as many people know about that one. I'm gonna go to that one. I mean, you get annoyed waiting for food at restaurants, Right? Fast food just destroyed it. Destroyed it. You had to wait like, oh man, we ordered 10 minutes ago. Did someone bring you food? Right? Like, did you just sit there and wait 11 minutes and get served food? Like, this is, this is barbaric. I had to wait 10 minutes. I'm, I'm not giving a tip. We hate waiting. One more. This is kind of fun. I normally don't do these in my sermons. This is fun. My God, we, we get annoyed when the signal's too low and the download takes too long. No way. I've been in the middle of the, the Arizona desert downloading songs. I'm like, this is crazy. It takes a minute and a half to download a song. I want to listen to it right now. <laughs> Two bars, right? Come on. We hate waiting. That's why this season just, it, we just, America would rather shove this whole season on, under the rug. We don't wait. The Jews have been waiting for 400 years just to hear from God again. When the book of Malachi closes and the book of Matthew opens, God's prophetic voice had been silent for 400 years. It's about 15 seconds and you were already uncomfortable. Weren't you? So I'm like, we get it. Move on. It's been eight seconds. What is up with this guy? Right? What if I did that again? What if I did it for two minutes? You start squirming, wouldn't you? I just sit down, relax for like five minutes. 400 years. They've been waiting to hear new word from God. They've been waiting for God for 400 years years and tonight he would speak finally tonight he would speak through this man Zacharias 
And so it says in verse 57, it says, Now Elizabeth, who we know is of the daughters of Aaron, she came from a priestly background, a priestly lineage, and married a priest. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When God makes a promise, it always comes true. Some of you just simply and profoundly need to know that when the one true creator God makes a promise, it always comes true. Maybe not in the way you like it, but in the way he ordained it. God's promises always come true a hundred percent of the time you and i don't know the future if we did we'd be at the casino right now god knows the future he knows everything when he makes a promise he knows it will come true now what we think it will look like when it comes true is often deviated from what his promise actually brings to fruition but I just simply want you to know Zacharias went through doubt in the midst of a promise, but it came true. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Good friends. Verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no. He shall be called John in accordance with what the angel of the Lord or from the Lord said in verse 13. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives. Here comes peer pressure. Like that's, it doesn't, that's not what we're doing these days. I don't know if you Googled it, but John's not a hot name these days. The list just came out from top names on 2015. John was not on it. And they, so they said to her, there is no one among your relatives. They're like, look, it doesn't make sense. Who is called by this name? So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. This must have been so annoying for Zacharias. They're doing signs, right? Zacharias is mute. He's not deaf. He's just got to be like, dude, I can hear. I know what's going on. They're like, they're doing the whole thing. And he's like, And so what does he do? And so he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote saying, his name is John. Now this is a step in faith. He didn't say, we have decided that. Look, Elizabeth and I got together. We thought after much nights of... He didn't say, look, we've decided the name or we think that a good name is... He said, look, God said, he promised. I simply stated as fact now. I simply stated as fact. It's an answer. Pastor Rob once said to me one time, he said, look, the best part about being as a Christian is that we serve a God with answers, not just questions. The whole postmodern movement would have you show up for a two-hour service on Sunday and just simply cause you to ask questions and then have you go home. Ask questions. Just question this, question that does this really, does hell, does Jesus, when he said this, does he this, and they send you home. Our God is a God of answers. 
He's a God of a definite plan, of promises that will come true 100% of the time. And he says, his name will be John. And so they've received that now. He said, look, his name is John. Why? Because God said so. Now he stepped out in true faith. Zacharias is in bold faith now. He says, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened. See that? The chastening is over. His will is now aligned with God's will. And his mouth was, lo- or his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. How many of us would have been, all right, first of all, God, that last 10 months was ridiculous, right? But what, what does Zacharias have? As soon as he's released from chastening, as soon as he's released from discipline from God himself, he's just like even more stoked on God. How often do we come out of a season of chastening? God, and, and the Bible tells us that God chastens those that he loves. It's different than punishing. He's not punishing you for anything you've done. He's chastening you. He already punished Jesus as your sin, so he doesn't need to add on punishment because yours was really bad. But in this moment, he's loosed and he just simply sings praises now. He's in full faith. He's in full trust that what God says is gonna happen is going to happen. It doesn't mean he didn't stumble, but he course corrected and he got in line with God. And now his tongue is loosed and he starts singing praises. He's not bitter. Verse 65, then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. What kind of child would this be? I'm six days away from having a daughter. On Saturday, the day after Christmas, Christmas is my wife's birthday, the 26th, we have our scheduled C-section. We've, all three of our kids will have been done via C-section. It's kind of great. We just get to pick a birthday. They're like, does Monday at four work for you? I'm like, eh, let's make it two. Schedule our kids in my family, right? <laughs> we tell the kid when he's showing up, okay? I'm six days away. Next Saturday, I'm going to have a daughter, Maisie James. And my wife and I are already asking these questions because we've got our two little boys. You've seen them, Ethan and Asher, straight hair, curly. If you didn't know their name, that's how we go by them, straight hair and curly. We're already asking questions, right? What color will her eyes be? My boys have blue, I have blue, my wife has brown. Are they going to go light? Are they going to go dark? Is it going to be hazel? What color hair? Our boys are strawberry blonde. Is she going to come out brunette? What kind of personality is she going to have? Is she going to be more like Ethan, like straight up rigid, like almost a Pharisee, right? Like kid came home. You want to know a kid came home from his first day of kindergarten? Chris is like, what was your favorite thing about your day? You know what Ethan said? The rules. <laughs> I can't make that nonsense up. You can ask my wife, Ethan, what was the best part about today, right? Recess, snack time, choice time, C block, E block, whatever they call it, like getting picked up, wearing skinny jeans as a five-year-old. I don't know, what is it? He's like, the rules. Kid loves rules. Just wants to know what the parameters are. Asher, on the other hand, never said the word rule in his life. If you've met him, you know what I'm talking about. If you've studied him, you know what I'm talking about. 
actually studied him for child development, right? You had to have a weird paper after that. Asher is just blitzkrieg. Every just wakes up in full-on rage. He's at home right now fighting with a pillow. I guarantee it. I've seen it. He just, he, this is his new thing this week. He just fights with a pillow. He rolls around. He just, boom, boom, and Ethan's just standing there making sure he's okay. I was like, <laughs> is Maisie going to be more like Ethan? Going to be more like Asher? Is she going to be completely different? What kind of kid is she going to be? It's a daughter with two older brothers, right? I don't, we don't know. Like, what kind of kid? And Zacharias' prophecy that you're going to see is going to begin to answer this question for them. What kind of child is this going to be? That's what they want to know. It's a good question to ask. What kind of kid is this going to be? Zacharias is going to begin to answer that with this prophecy. Now keep in mind, this is the first time that God will speak prophetically for, over, for 400 years. It says, now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. As Zach taught last week, this is as much about the coming of the Holy Spirit as it is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes on a mission to glorify Jesus. And Jesus comes to do the will of the Father. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son does the will of the Father. The Trinity in perfect functional submission. And so now Zacharias, the priest, his tongue has been loosed. The crowd is saying, what kind of kid is this going to be? That God would release him from this ailment. in faith, and Zacharias' prophecy, which is also a song, so I'm going to be singing the rest, I'm just kidding, and so, Zacharias, old man, would have gone so south so fast, right, it says, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, and so here it comes, and if you've got a, if you've got a, a pen, I like doing brackets myself. If you want to do a bracket from verse 68 to 75, you can write Jesus. If you want to do a bracket from 76 through 79, you can say John. Because what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to set up these two figures, Jesus and John in this prophecy, because it's going to relate to both. And I want to show you something um, here in a second on the screen that I hope will blow your mind, perhaps show you how creative God really is. And so he prophesied. So God breaks his prophetic silence through Zacharias. And he comes to declare two main things, that salvation comes through the Messiah, and then he calls out the forerunner, the forerunner for Jesus, John the Baptist. The forerunner. And so he says this, and by the way, this, this song is, is, tends to be known as the Benedictus. In Latin, because they would, they would label songs or they would title songs after the first word or first few series of words. Just as Mary's song on the, in 46 through 56 is called Magnificent because she says, my soul magnifies. And so they've titled that, theologians have titled that song Magnificent. This one has been titled Benedictus, which means blessed. And so he says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, before we get into this, God, the original author, the greatest author of all time, I want to show you, uses a literary technique to place emphasis on something. And this literary technique, some of you may have heard it. I think they use it in Iliad. Homer's used it. Socrates. They've used this as a literary technique. It's known as a chiasm. Anyone heard that? Anyone heard of a chiasm? 
I'm going to show you. I've got the, the kind of the generic definition is an arrangement of concepts or words that are repeated in reverse order. What I think the definition leaves out is that it comes to a climax before it repeats. And I want to show you something if we've got the slide. And I want to show you this because I, I want this prophecy to be what we focus on for the rest of this. And uh, we talk about the emphasis that Zacharias is playing on it. You got it? I can keep going. Just let me know. There she is. Now, check this out. Whoa! Kidding. Look over that very quickly. It's the sum of this prophecy. See how it it gets to a crux, right? It gets to an emphasis. It repeats the emphasis, and then it repeats in reverse order. This is known as a chiasm. And it's quite literally how you point to something as a central theme. And so visited by God, the horn of salvation, prophets since the beginning of the world, salvation from enemies, mercy promised to fathers, covenant to father Abraham, salvation from the enemies. Right now it's mirroring it in reverse, prophet of the highest, knowledge of salvation, and visited by the day spring. Now, there's two verses that are left out of this, 75 and 79, because that's where he sums up each of these chunks. He sums up the first chunk on Jesus and he sums up the chunk on John. So you simply extrapolate those from the chiasm. This is God quite clearly and quite creatively placing emphasis through new word that he's giving to Israel. And so we'll leave this up. You can kind of fascinate on that, but does that make sense? Do you see how it does that in reverse? A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A. And great authors and great storytellers have used and still use this today. Sometimes you obviously don't even know that they're using it, but it places reverse emphasis after making the central theme known as it repeats. And so it says this, we'll take a look at Zacharias' prophecy because again, this is one of those things that we'd leave out of the Advent story, right? Because it's not talking about baby Jesus in a manger. And yet God is clearly saying that this is part of the ushering in of the first coming of Christ. And so he says, blessed Zacharias now as a prophet, which means he brings new word from God. New word from God. He says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. And he calls him right away. He says, we are talking about the God that you worship. Not a new God, not a different God. He says, Israel, I'm talking about the God of Israel, your God. And then he says this, he says, for he has visited visited. This is God via the Holy Spirit through Zacharias saying, Jesus is God. I'm so tired of Christians not being able to defend when an atheist comes up and says, Jesus never said he was God. And you're like, shoot, I don't actually have a direct quote where he says, I am God. Again, God comes and he says, look, first thing you need to know, the God of Israel is visiting you. He's drawing a line in the sand. You have to fall on one side or the other of Jesus. He is God or he's not. He says, the God of Israel, we're talking about the same God. He has visited you and he's prophesying that Jesus would be born. That Jesus himself is fully God and the God of Israel at that. He says he has visited and redeemed his people and redemption is the meta-narrative of the Bible. It is the grand story Redemption simply means in a biblical context that God is buying back what has been stolen from him and sold into slavery. Redemption. 
that we were once his and that we rebelled from him and we've sold ourselves into slavery. Zach talked about the book of Hosea last week. I taught through that years ago. What an epic story of redemption that Jesus is the greater Hosea and that as the church we identify with Gomer who sold ourselves into slavery and we are. We are selling ourselves through idolatry and sin. We sell ourselves to slavery. Even though Romans 6.20 says, look, when you're a slave to sin, you're free in terms of righteousness. What does it mean by that? It says when you're a slave to sin, you can come up with your own righteousness. So when you see people like, no, I'm actually free in this lifestyle. I'm free in this alternative lifestyle. I'm free in my sexuality. I'm free in my insubordination. I'm free in my non-faith. They actually believe that. But the Bible says it's because they're a slave of sin. And so he says, the Holy Spirit comes and he says, look, the God of Israel has visited you. And he speaks in a past tense because again, he's prophesying. Has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. And the horn is used throughout the Bible as a sign of strength, power, whether it's the horn of an oxen or the horns that they put on helmets. And I'm Norwegian, so particularly I, I identify with this, right? And I'm from Minnesota. And so my team is the Vikings for crying out loud. What do they have on their helmets? Horns. Supposed to be this idea of strength, the horn of salvation, and, and I and I pulled up something that's kind of interesting. Maybe you won't think so on on salvation, but Bach, a commentator, says, despite modern usage in Scripture, the term salvation is rarely used in reference to receiving eternal life and gaining entrance into heaven. Sit on that for a second. Isn't that exactly what we think salvation is? Despite modern usage in scripture, the term salvation is rarely used in reference to receiving eternal life. I would say that's redemption. When you're bought back, it's not being redundant. The Bible has different words for reasons. When you receive eternal life, you've been bought back. That's redemption. It's usually used in reference to, or it's, it's rarely used in reference to receiving eternal life and gaining entrance into heaven. Rather, it's most often used as gaining deliverance from enemies gaining deliverance. This is salvation actually comes in and smacks your enemy. It's not just simply, you're good, you're gonna get to heaven, but too bad right now, I know that's terrible. You've been redeemed, you're getting into heaven, but salvation is when God comes in and smacks your enemies and delivers you from grip. Whether it's actual physical earthly enemies like Jews were dealing with, with with the Romans, or whether it's being a slave of sin, salvation comes in and crushes your enemy, releases you from your enemy. It's a promise of God. That's why we say we're saved, right? But we don't think of it like that. We think saved, that means I get into heaven. How often do we say, no, I'm saved. Porn doesn't grip me anymore. Gossip doesn't grip me anymore. Greed and anger doesn't grip me anymore. Lust doesn't grip me anymore. Why? Because I've been saved and it's come in and it's smacked my enemy for me. And so he says this horn of salvation has been raised up in the house of his servant David, verse 70, and he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. I've said it a million times, I'm gonna say it again. The entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament is about one thing, Jesus. Since we rebelled in the garden in Genesis 3, it only took us two chapters to screw everything up. God has been preaching and teaching that salvation is coming. 
from the first gospel in Genesis 3 all the way through to Malachi. The whole of it has been doing this. And that's what he's saying. The whole of it has been doing this. It's all coming to a perfected promise. And this is what we've been waiting for. This is the purpose of Advent. Both in its infancy when it first happened and today that we would reflect on the fact that all of history is coming face to face with Jesus. The entirety of your life is about coming face to face with Jesus. And so he says, all the prophets have been talking about this. He says, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So again, God promises salvation. Again, it often doesn't look like we want it to. One of the reasons that the Jews were so furious with Jesus is because he didn't come in and, 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 and take over the political system. That was their idea of salvation, that they would simply be released from earthly enemies. Now God is still to this day keeping his promise to Israel. There's no reason on the face of the planet that that country should still exist. I've been there, it's about that big wide, about that big long, surrounded by billions of people that hate it and every so often try to destroy it. And still they stand. There is absolutely no reason Israel should stand today. Billions of people that want it crushed. God is keeping his promise to Israel. He will keep his promise to Israel, but it often doesn't come in the way that we want it to. But his promises always come true. And so he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now here's where we're coming into that perfect crux. It says the oath which he swore, well, I'm sorry, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. We're not gonna get into the whole Abrahamic covenant, covenant okay? But it, it revolved around three things. God promised Abraham land. He promised him descendants. And he promised him Blessing, okay? Land, descendants, and blessing. And so he's saying that this is what this prophecy is all about because then he repeats it. He says, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham. This is the central theme right here as he repeats it twice as he goes through this chiasm. Advent is about the accumulation of a promise, Jesus coming, the emphasis that God places after staying silent for 400 years is that I'm keeping my promise. That I promised to your father and I'm in covenant with your father. Advent is primarily about the coming fruition of God's promise. That he would redeem a people that he would buy back those who have sold themselves to slavery. And then now he's going to reverse order and walk right back out. And you'll see at that break between 75 and 76, he's going to launch into talking a bit about John. Sounds like this. It says, The oath to which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies. Now he's going to walk back in reverse. 
being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. This is the one that is, is again, it's, it's extracted from this because it summarizes what's come before it. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Now he goes into the section on John as the forerunner of Jesus. He says, and you child, now he talks about John, will be called the prophet of the highest. John was gonna fulfill Jewish prophecy. Here's one of the crazy things, right? You think all the Israeli, you think all the Jewish prophets stopped when? In the Old Testament, right? New Testament, no more prophets of Israel, right? False. That's one of the things that even I've caught this week that I've trapped myself into thinking. The prophets were in the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. This is that beautiful crossover. Okay, this is that beautiful crossover. He says this, will be called the prophet of the highest. John the Baptist is the greatest Jewish prophet. And that's why, and you can see that again when you go into Luke 3, you can see that he, he preaches to the Jews, right? Still as a Jew, look, there's no Christians yet. What else is he? Agnostic? No, of course not. John comes out Jewish. Heck, Jesus comes out Jewish. John now, the Baptist, is the greatest. He will become Israel's greatest prophet. And that's why this made sense to me this week. Jesus in Luke 16, 16 said the law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets were until John. And so what you're seeing is that John is being declared that he will be Israel's greatest prophet. So when they say, who's the greatest prophet of Israel? Normally it's like, ah, we start debating. Oh, was it Isaiah? Was it Elijah? No, the Bible says it was John. And that causes conflict. No, 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 he's New Testament. Let's talk about Jewish prophets. It's a Jewish prophet right here. And Jesus says the law and the prophets were until him. That's why we don't believe when the Mormons say that they have apostles and prophets. Jesus himself said that ended with John. New word for me ends with John. The old covenant is sealed, proclaimed, and then John goes as a forerunner to push into Jesus bringing in the new covenant. And so he says, and you child will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. And I love that tender mercy because this reminds Israel that this is what's known as a unilateral covenant. There's two types of covenants, a bilateral and a unilateral. Bilateral means that both parties are responsible. Unilateral means one party is responsible. God only enters into unilateral covenants. There is no way he trusts us to hold up our end of the deal. One of the most loving things I can tell you is that God has not put any trust in you right? He's not like, man, I'm really trusting that Mark nails this one. That's why he sends the Holy Spirit to simply preach to you in your own heart and dwelled as a Christian. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a preacher. I'm not called to save anyone from this pulpit. God will always unilaterally enter into covenant with his people. And just with Mary, he will always overshadow us. He will always overshadow us. Thank goodness. The weight of the gospel doesn't rest on our shoulders. The weight of salvation doesn't rest on our shoulders. We're still called to an active anticipation. But God enters into this unilaterally and it says through the tender mercy of our God, which just reminds Israel that they are saved 
not because of anything they've done. We are saved despite everything we've done. We need to hear that today as a church too. Zach and I will never, never shy away from taking a swing at legalism. Never. The Bible tees it up so much, all we as preachers need to do is knock it. Just, you are not saved because of anything you've done or refused to do. You are saved despite everything you've done. I am saved despite everything I've done. Unilaterally overshadowed by God's tender mercy. And so he declares this to Israel as well. Through the tender mercy of our God, which, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide your feet into the way of peace. And so John, as this forerunner of Jesus, his first prophetic task would be to announce his imminent arrival the king's imminent arrival, as well as prepare a way for him. The second prophetic task, though ultimately responsible, is the Messiah. The prophetic forerunner would start the process by calling Israel to repentance. <clears throat> and it says, so the child grew and became strong in the spirit. Let's talk about John. And was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Why the desert? God has a thing for deserts. Doesn't he? He has a way of taking the prophets out there, stripping them down, quite literally at times. I mean, you see John come back into the scene when Jesus gets baptized. He's a gnarly dude. He's wearing just hair, like animal hair, and just a crazy outfit. He's coming in. People are like, this, this freak's coming in from the desert. He, was, he went out. God sends him out and prepares him and he's still preaching and teaching and calling Israel to repentance out in the desert. It's, it's like as barren as Arizona. I've been to Iraq. I've, I've been in a helicopter over right. You could just see nothing forever. It's, it's ridiculous. I got a picture too of like one other helicopter and nothing and call it traffic jam. It's ridiculous. There's just nothing out there. That's where God can just empty you of everything. Some of you are in spiritual deserts right now, quite possibly being built up for something great. And so he was called into the desert. And we fast forward and we see that Jesus ushers in a new covenant, the one that the Bible declares to be a better covenant. Do you know that? And the Bible says that the covenant we're in now is the church today is a better covenant than the one Israel had in the Old Testament. It's better for the Jew, for the Gentile, all are free to receive it. You're no longer defined by your nationality, your ethnicity. And, and don't get me wrong, John played a very, very, very specific role ordained by God as the final and greatest Jewish prophet. But as Christians, we're called today to live lives in anticipation of Jesus' second coming. So just as they lived in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, and we say, wow, that must have been an exciting time to be alive. The same is true for us today that we are to live actively anticipating the second coming. This is a time, this is a season to reflect, to repent, to, to, to appreciate Jesus' first coming. But it's also a time 
to reactivate our excitement and our anticipation for Jesus' second coming. God is a God who makes promises and they come true every time. I've got a short list of seven. There's quite literally thousands of promises that God makes. Right? Everyone tries to debate on like how many laws there are in the Bible because they think it's a book of rules, not revelation, right? You've heard this. People have like a number too. Like Old Testament is like 648 laws and you can't keep any of those. And so, and we're trying to find out this. You know what the promises are in the thousands? I'll give you seven. Thousands to, to the hundreds of quote rules, which are really just protective measures for children. One of which is that he has promised to supply every need that we have. Now, notice the Bible is very clear. It says need. It doesn't say want. So you want a different job, you don't get it. You want a different grade on your test, you don't get it. You want a different career. You want a different want, want, want. The Bible doesn't declare that you'll get everything you want. God is anything but a genie, right? Rub the lamp, God gives you what he wants as long as you've been good. But he promises to supply your every need. Two, God has promised that his grace is sufficient for us. Do you believe that? Grace is how God gets things done. It's what he gives you that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Salvation, empowerment, sanctification, conversion. God gives you everything you need and has promised that his grace is sufficient. Three, it's just a list of seven. God has promised that his children will not be overtaken with temptation. So I'm like, that's crazy. I'm overtaken by temptation all the time. The Bible says he will never give you a temptation that he doesn't also provide an escape route. You choose that fork in the road. You choose which way you go. Jesus is a gentleman. He's not going to force you. But he will always give you the right turn to the left turn that you're debating. Always. Always. He will never give you a temptation that you cannot choose your way out of. Number four, God has promised us victory over death. We fascinate over death, don't we? Some people fascinate over death. Some people would want to put it off and pretend like it's anything. It's not going to happen to me. I'm young, I'm dumb. It's way so far. And we, we, we do one of two things. We either fascinate it with us and it cripples us, or we try to ignore it. Probably because if we think about it, it'll cripple us. Jesus says, I'll give you victory over it. Why? Because I've already defeated it. Number five, God has promised that all things work together for good. This is not the prosperity gospel. He doesn't say that everything that happens will be good. It's almost like God was very specific in how he wrote verses. He doesn't say everything that happens to you will be good. He says all things will work together for good. In our discipleship group right now, we got a guy going through a massive career change. Massive. Huge company going under, liquidation, family. And we prayed that simply all things would be worked together for good. And that's ultimately what he rests in. And he's almost, he's excited. That was two weeks ago and the last time in our discipleship group, this last Thursday, he was like, I'm excited, right? He's got a peace now. He's like, this sucks. This is terrible. Like we Christians, we don't say that enough. You're free, the pastor said, you can say this sucks. This is terrible. How was your day? It was awful. 
It's bad. This is not cool. Some really crappy, some really shady things happening. But when God says he'll work all things together for good, I trust him. I'm stating that as a fact. And now you're in faith. God has promised that those who believe in Jesus and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins will be saved. And it's not dependent on baptism or else the guy on the cross next to Jesus wouldn't be in heaven today like Jesus said he would be. He's not baptized. But if you place your faith in Jesus, when you stand before the judgment throne, God will not see you in all your imperfection. He will see Jesus in complete perfection and you're in. Number seven, God has promised his people eternal life. Do you know that we get glorified bodies in the end? Do you know that this body, which is slowly breaking down, I know some of you are young, you think you're just ramping up. You're actually, (laughs) we're all dying from the day we were born. Slowly. I'm 34 now, I'm becoming evidently aware of that. Injuring myself, sleeping, waking up with a kinked neck. God says eternal life with him in heaven. Those are just seven promises. And God is a God who keeps his promises. And he said he's coming back. Three verses for you. Acts 3, 19 through 21, it says, Repent then and turn to God. Repent means turn away from. Turn away from your sin and put it to death. Whatever's hindering you tonight, whatever sin in your life that you dragged in here, even when I say the word sin, the Holy Spirit pops a short little list in your head, doesn't he? It's the one you're struggling with right now. I don't have to do that. I say sin, something comes up on the typewriter in your head. He says, repent from that, turn away, then turn to God. See, it's not just about turning away from sin, it's about turning toward God. And he says, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. How many of you just need to be refreshed right now? Right? How many of you are tired? It's been a long year, whether it's been a long semester or a long work year. It's been a long fall. I'm in marketing, it's the craziest time of the year. A refreshing may come upon you from the Lord that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This whole thing, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all coming face to face with Jesus. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And 1 Corinthians 11.26, we're gonna take communion, aren't we? It says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we do this every week, anticipating, focused on his first coming tonight, this season, but every day living in anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Because like John, who was called to an active anticipation of the Messiah, an active ministry pointing to Jesus, Christians are called to do the same today. Here's my last question, two. Do we, God speaks Sunday nights, do we believe Jesus is coming back? Do you believe personally in your heart Jesus is actually coming back as he has promised. That's the easy one. 
do you, do we live like Jesus is coming back? It's easy to say, I believe he's coming back. But does our life reflect that we believe that? Every week I tell my boys we're going foot golfing on Saturday. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know what I'm talking about. And all week my boys live in that truth. They tell people at school, they remind mom that she doesn't get to go. <laughs> they do. Carissa doesn't want to go. Don't. <laughs> she's, she's walked with us once, you know, right? And she's just trying to get the baby to come earlier. This mom, dad, guess what we're doing? They, they think it's like a secret. Like, like, Ethan comes up, he's like, Dad, foot golf. I was like, dude, it's Tuesday. <laughs> You'll see, he's like, foot golf. <laughs> like, he bounces when he gives it. And Asher's into it now, too. They live in light. They are pointing to Saturday. Jesus says, I'm coming back. You profess me as Lord, King, God, and Christ, Savior of the whole world. This week, Would there be any evidence of that? Are you actively anticipating that Jesus is coming back? Are you just focused on that at one point, way back a couple thousand years ago, he did come? I believe that, he came. But do you believe this Advent season that he is coming? That's the question. And so we're gonna go into a time of worship, a time of communion as we worship Jesus and as we remember his sacrifice until he comes again. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you're a God of promises. And not just a God of promises, a God that completes his promises. You promised a Messiah would come, and he showed up. And today, you still promise that Messiah will come. We don't know when, but I pray that we're excited that it's true. And that we would declare what's true that our lives would reflect what's true as your image bearers, that we serve a risen king, not dead bones. That Jesus, you're alive, you're preparing, and our call as Christians is to simply proclaim your truths until you return. Jesus, I'm excited to see you. Pray that we would, we would focus on, on, in this season especially, on, on the miracle of your first coming, but that every single day of our year would be excited for your second coming. Jesus, though we struggle to wait, though we're excited to see you, would you put us on mission? Would you give us an active anticipation of your second coming so that the world who's lost and dying would see you now before they're forced to see you then? Jesus, be glorified in this time of worship. In your name we pray, amen.